0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania has a new tourism slogan. A local man describes his experiences with Syrian refugees. But up front from Capital Week in Review, we'll start with Capital Week in Review with WITF's Capital Bureau Chief, Mary Wilson. Mary, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Well, let me get the right uh microphone here. There we go.
1: Hi, Scott. Oh, that's better.
0: <laughs> yeah, you you perfected it the second time around. <laughs> anyway, budget hearings uh came to an end yesterday. That may be confusing for uh, some people because hallelujah. they're wondering they're wondering which budget we're talking about. But yeah. uh, what do we learn?
1: Oh, you know, not much. Uh there there's a lot of talk about, you know, how important compromise is going to be in the next several months. Um we are more than 8 months into a um, a budget impasse, in that the state does not have a complete budget that's been approved by the governor, and um, and yet we are starting down the road of the planning process for the next fiscal year, so the next state budget. Um, so work is starting to pile up. You know, work left unfinished is starting to pile up, um, and uh, and. The past three weeks, lawmakers have been in, you know, this annual right of budget hearings where they bring all the agencies in and they talk about what they need. And it also provides like a stage for some grandstanding for lawmakers who want to, you know, rehash the the fiscal past. And and so so there was a bit of that. Um, But we really didn't learn much about, you know, what the catalyst for a deal might be or where the two sides are you know, you know, might come together on um, taxes or spending, which have been the two big issues of the impasse to date.
0: This is unprecedented in that uh, we're holding budget hearings without a budget from the year before. Were they different in any way, the hearings?
1: Oh, no. Not that I could tell. I mean, you know, no, not that I could tell is the short answer to that. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, But one thing that I kind of got the sense is that uh, both sides feel that we have to wrap up 2015, 2016 before moving on to the next state budget.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, there was a bit of talk on last. So yesterday was the final day of budget hearings. The House was the last chamber to finish its budget hearings. And, you know, the Democratic and Republican um, uh, ranking members on the committee said we'd like to finish the the late budget before we start on the budget that's not yet due. And so, yeah, that would be great. There's no clue as to how that might happen. But yeah, that's that's what they're both talking about doing, and and there's a reason for that. To, to um, the budget is incomplete, and the different groups that uh, stand to suffer because of incomplete funding are all starting to. Um, Make their presence known. There's been this low, steady drumbeat since the budget was approved by the governor in late December, right before the new year. Uh, there's been this low drumbeat. Uh, you can hear the anxiety the of the budget, different groups.
0: The budget approved that he blue-lined. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah I right. yeah, just wanted to point that out. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and and um, you know he 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 blue-lined vetoed. Uh, it, so it was a partial veto, and he. Cut funding for schools and he um, vetoed the agriculture budget and he vetoed spending for corrections and he vetoed um, health related research, little line items here and there, uh, rural hospitals. And so all these different groups, you know, since then basically have kept up this kind of sometimes low and sometimes pretty high volume. Uh, a message of anxiety about what are we going to do when we actually run out of money. And so, you know, that's meant different things for each different group.
0: One of the things that we are hearing now, uh, we're hearing from a, a few school districts across the state, and they said this back in December when the governor... Uh, you know passed a partial budget, approved a partial budget uh, is that we have enough money to last until February or march well, we're in March now, and mm-hmm. we're starting to hear some school districts say that unless we get some money soon, we may have to shut down
1: right right so so the school this week the school district um or the School Boards Association asked a state court to force the state to send the school district's money over and above what's been authorized by the finalized state, or by the incomplete but approved budget in place. Um, So we'll see if anything comes of that. We'll see what the court says. The Wolf administration, uh, the budget secretary for the the governor, seemed to think that that was not that likely to succeed that effort um, because of prior precedent. Um, But that's one thing that's going on. The state prison system has already had its basically its problems averted because the Treasury has decided to float them money over and above what was authorized for the state prisons for the good of the, uh, I think the phrase is, the safety, welfare, um, and health of the Commonwealth. Um, So the prisons are still being funded. Um, The agriculture budget was zeroed out by the governor with the budget that's in place now. But... um, but, but, you know, the different programs within that, they're starting to cry bloody murder. Um, recently, we've been seeing the, the Penn State College of Agricultural Sciences is talking about how, you know, what this will mean for, for farmers that aren't getting the same help with pest invasions and um, research that's being halted. They're actually, it's really kind of interesting, um, Penn State is having trouble um, keeping its researchers working for Penn State because of the instability that this – kind of creates for those. I mean, you figure you're a researcher on, I don't know, the, the stink bug, say, at Penn State. Um, but Which is a big deal, yeah. Right. But if your funding is up in the air, I mean, this is what the dean of, Penn, of the of the ag school told me, if your funding is up in the air um, and, you know, you're kind of in high demand as a researcher with, like, this specialized knowledge, um, another, you know, some other land grant school might look like a pretty good opportunity and in another state. So usually the dean says they're offering counter offers to their researchers researchers to keep them them working for the school, but they can't really offer counteroffers right now. So they're just trying to keep everybody in place wow. That's really challenging. That is
0: that is unusual. Mm-hmm. That you, hear, you don't think about that very... You think about that with well, professional actually, sports franchises, free agency, and that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: actually, and his point was it's actually not that unusual. It's actually really recently the school had to do... The, had a similar experience because um, back under the Corbett administration right. when the state-related schools saw double-digit funding increases or funding decreases, or, you know, on the order of nearly 20% right. funding decreases, that hurt hurt ag research at Penn State then as well. So he, he's actually, his point was actually, well, we've had to deal with this before, but this would be even worse if this funding didn't come through pretty soon.
0: By the way, uh, just to let uh, everyone know that uh, we will be uh, addressing that topic uh, with the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau, the Extension Service, Penn State Extension Service on uh, Monday's program, as part of uh, Monday's program. Are there any negotiations scheduled?
1: Oh, like with all the legislative leaders and the governor. Not that I've heard. And apparently uh, there hasn't been they call them five caucus meetings. So that's when you have the each each legislative caucus plus the governor's office represented at a big, like, say, global meeting, you know. And apparently they haven't had one of those big kid, big table meetings (laughs) Since December, Um, although there have been staff meetings and the different legislative leaders have been talking sometimes, you know, one on one. And the governor met with some legislative uh, Republicans uh, as recently as this week. But apparently there hasn't been that big five caucus meeting this this year at all.
0: As you mentioned, uh, Randy Albright, uh, the the governor's budget secretary, was the the final budget meeting yesterday. And he, he said something that is. Kind of unusual itself in that he admitted that the governor uh, only uh, approved partial, you know, the partial budget in December to use this leverage. Now, that's unusual. Everyone well, I don't think that. you
1: heard him say the word leverage. Okay, but Yeah. yeah point in so taken. many words.
0: In so many words. He
1: said it was to send a message. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: But uh, so, so he kind of admitted, admitted that. But is anyone softening at all? I mean, have you noticed no. anyone's stances? So everyone is dug in everyone's looking for leverage everyone's looking at okay we're we're not really ready to compromise on this sure that's that's what you're saying sure
1: and you know they talk about the importance of compromise but there's no you know like we've been saying for months and months and months and sorry to say it again but there's no talk of well here is a tax that we could live with or here's a spending cut that we could all live with. It's just not there.
0: Hmm. Uh, Mary, another uh, big item this week, and really this continues over from last week, the fallout from revelations of child sexual abuse in the Altoona Johnstown uh, Catholic Diocese. what, what What do we see this week?
1: so um this week began the conversation about legislative changes to the to the statute of limitations laws on filing criminal charges for child sexual abuse or filing civil claims um, to to win a settlement for child sexual abuse. Um, I'm going to butcher the statutes of limitations if I try to recite them on air now they're kind of complicated um, but But basically, um, lawmakers are saying they want to eliminate the statute of limitations. Some lawmakers are talking about wanting to eliminate the statute of limitations on criminal prosecutions for child sexual abuse. Um, And that's of interest because in this um, grand jury report that the Office of Attorney General released on the Roman Catholic Diocese of Altoona-Johnstown, no charges were recommended by the grand jury for a number of reasons. One of which was that for a lot of these alleged instances of abuse, the statute of limitations had expired. And so the uh, obvious remedy to a lot of state lawmakers is, well, let's just eliminate the criminal statute of limitations for that kind of offense. Um, And then a little bit more controversial is a change that would create what they call a two-year window that would suspend the statute of limitations for civil claims um, uh, so, so that a victim of child sexual abuse would be able to um, file a civil claim in that case when some sort of settlement. Um, and um, that would be a two-year window in which they'd be able to do that, even if the statute of limitations on that um, a f- violation offense had, had expired.
0: And again, I'm sensing that there's kind of a softening. Uh, This is something that um, has been held up for some time as far as changing uh, statute of limitations. But it seems as though this Altoona-Johnstown situation has made a number of legislators who may not who may not have uh, supported it in the past to take another look at it um, I know representative Todd Rossi uh who Mark Rossi Mark Rossi I'm mm-hmm. sorry uh who is um, a democrat from uh, Berks County mm-hmm. has been on this program a couple times and uh, has talked about his own, uh, that he was abused uh, as, as, as a child, um, has been out front with this and been very aggressive, and it just seems as though th- th- the state as a whole, I, you know, I used the word shocked when we talked about it, and I had people say, we shouldn't be shocked because we've heard this now for the last uh, decade or so. But that this has gotten a lot of attention here in Pennsylvania, and that there are people who uh, want to, to, to find some solutions to it, or at least try to help.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and the the it appears that the criminal statute of lim- lifting the statute of limitations on on criminal uh, charges for this offense that that is not that controversial. the The question arises for more lawmakers: is would it be constitutional to have a two year window? Um, and 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 that appears not to be settled. Um, th- when I say two year window, of course, I'm talking about the civil claims. And um and and then there's a there's a lobbying effort. There's a push. There's a push from the you know from the Catholic lobby. There's a push from the insurance lobby. Um, You're talking a lot of money, right? Right. You know, all all these diocese um, dioceses would be could could be opened up to to more costly settlements. Um, if this, if these two changes would would come to pass,
0: yeah, and Representative Rossi uh, just this week also recommended. Actually, he said this on Smart Talk uh, that he'd like to see investigations in every diocese in the state. Now, you know, you need probable cause, and uh, that's that's a big undertaking. But I think that uh, you know he's so emotional on this and. Uh, he just feels that more needs to be done than what's been done up until this point. Mary, I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and uh, uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, all Scott. Right. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Some 2,000 refugees arrive in Greece each day. Most are coming from Syria to escape that country's five-year-old civil war, but there are others from Afghanistan. They're hoping to find a safe home for their families in Europe. We all have seen the photographs of refugees huddled on rafts and boats after crossing the Aegean Sea. Not many Americans have witnessed it firsthand, but our next guest has. And he says there's a disconnect between Americans' perception and what's really happening. Joining us is John Wirth, who is a youth pastor based in York County, and he goes by Pastor Jay. Pastor Jay, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: All right. The the broadest question of all. Tell us what you saw in Greece.
2: Oh, I don't even know where to start. Um, the best place is probably on Lesvos. I mean, that's their first uh, entry into Europe, and I had the opportunity to spend some time there. Um, really, what you see is is people that are desperate. Um, they're, in a, they're in a bad situation, and um, they really just want to get to a safe place. They want to be somewhere that they don't have to worry about their kids going to sleep at night and uh, worry about their families being harmed, and so they're, they're trying to get away. Did you actually talk to refugees? I did. I did. Uh, I spent uh, a bulk of the time that I was in Greece. I spent about two weeks in Greece in January. Uh, most of that time was in Athens, where I had interpreters and translators that that were helping with that process. But I was able to spend some time on the island actually physically pulling people out of boats. And um, it's something that, that sticks with you. Uh,
0: that must be quite the experience the first time you see... Uh, You know, they're all, it seems as though those rubber rafts or those boats are all ready to capsize because there are so many refugees piled into them. But talk about that experience. What was going through your mind as you're seeing that first one come in?
2: The first boat that um, I was able to assist with um, the day, the time I was on, uh, the one day I was actually able to spend the whole day on Lesbos, um, there were 13 rafts that I know for sure arrived on the island that day. Most of them on the northern side of the island, um, where the side of the island where I was at was south of the airport and the capital, um, and that's the southeast part of the island. And, and uh, there was four boats that landed that day, and I was able to help with all of those. Um, the first one. Um, What happens when they get to Turkey is the smugglers um, offer someone a free passage and they say, hey, we'll we'll send you for free. And um, the only condition is you have to steer the boat. (laughs) So you've got people who don't really know, never maybe even been to the ocean, never set foot in the ocean before trying to steer a boat full of 70 other people um, there. And and so there was a lot of back and forth. Um, it It was shimmying pretty badly and it actually looked like it was going to capsize while we were there. We kept seeing it turn sideways and rolling. Um even though the seas were relatively calm that day. and so um, it's it's anxiety inducing. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it's tough to watch uh, what you think it, it could be a disaster happen right in front of you and you and you can't really do anything about it because they're too far out from shore. and so it's it's difficult.
0: Are the refugees making any noise? Are they calling to the
2: shore? Yeah, they're they're waving and and um, and calling uh, once they get close enough that they can start hearing people from the shore. Um, they they definitely want people to know they're there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
0: they are wearing life jackets, though, right?
2: Some of them, um, not all of them. No, no, not all of them. Um, sometimes they're too small, and so, and um, while I was there, I was actually able to pick up and and just to bring the story home to people and kind of. It let them see what I saw. Um, sometimes people, uh, you know, you pay for your passage, and this is the stories that I got from refugees. They pay for their passage um, to the the human traffickers that are that actually have shops set up in Turkey. They have brick and mortar, like you can walk in and just like you're ordering a cappuccino, put money down on the counter and, and pay for a spot on one of these boats. Um, but that doesn't include your life vest. And that costs extra, and so some of them can't afford it because they've um, spent all of their their family's money, just trying to get there. Um, sometimes um, the little kids, um, people, a family can't afford that, so the parents will have a life vest and they'll be holding the children. Uh, but sometimes they they can't find a life vest small enough for them, so I even picked up pool floaties, like, you know, rubber, uh, like inflatable pool wings um <laughs> that they that they put on some of the smallest of the children um to get there so sometimes they do sometimes they don't it, it really depends on the individual family circumstance or refugee circumstance
0: how much did they pay did they tell you
2: um i heard ranging stories anywhere from around 1100 euro um which is probably closer to 1300 dollars us um depends on the time of year too it fluctuates you know in summer when there's more traffic they they charge more um the, the smugglers do but um, I had one um, refugee that I spoke to who paid uh, 3,300 euro for one trip and his boat capsized and he actually got sent back to Turkey. He ended up paying another 2,500 to get on one of those little rubber dinghies. And sure. so $6,000 just to, to get to Greece. Yeah.
0: And the children, the smugglers charge as much for the children as they do the adults, mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
2: yeah. It's what, to, to the best of my understanding, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so how did you get to Greece? How did you get there and what did you want to do?
2: Uh, for me, this whole trip started actually listening to WITF <laughs> on my way to, oh. uh, yeah, yeah, uh, on my way into Good. another, uh, I work two jobs on my way into my, other, my second job. Uh, I've got almost an hour commute, and so I was listening to it, and I began to hear about Ilan Kurdi, and then those pictures are everywhere now. It's a very famous story. Um, a, a young boy that washed up on the shores of Turkey drowned, and, um, you know, uh, I don't know how you can see those pictures and not be moved. And... um I just began to pray about it, being faster, and and said, you know, God, what you're doing something here? What is that? And and He said, well, you need to be helping. You need to be doing something. And so, um, turns out, I, I have a connection to somebody I knew that was living in Greece, living uh, in Athens, and, and is actually working with an NGO, uh, non-government organization, rendering humanitarian aid specifically to the refugees. And so, I was able to connect with that person and um, and and get an inroad there. So,
0: your father went with you, right?
2: My father did. Yeah, uh, and for him the story is even uh more um compelling. He uh spent a long time in the Navy. Um he worked as a consultant um for uh in, in intelligence um for a number of years and he was actually in, traveling in a vehicle. He was um next to the Pentagon when the planes hit on 9/11. Mm. And um Heard the boom, saw the smoke. Um, the company he was working for had a contract at the Pentagon that day. He lost four coworkers, people that he had interacted with. Um, and then his contracts began to shift into not just regular military intelligence, but into counterterrorism intelligence. And so um, for him, um, it takes on a whole different aspect. You know, he, he, um, we, we have all um, heard about a lot of the, the terrible things that some of the extremists have done, and, and that was his day-to-day, a lot of stuff that didn't even make the mainstream media. Um, so I kind of hesitantly asked him, I don't know if he'll be willing to do this or not, but again, I was I was praying about it and said, all right, God, um, I think this would be good for him to have faces to go with this instead of just seeing all the violence all the time. And um, to his credit, he's, he's a good man, he jumped at the chance to go in, and to help and to and to be there for um, people who are, are getting away from these places and so.
0: We know there's a lot of controversy in this country about whether the Syrian refugees should be admitted. Uh, most of those refugees uh, are going to European countries, they'll be mm-hmm. settled in Germany or some of the other European countries mm-hmm. and uh, Greece and Lesbos is mm-hmm. just on their way, it's their, mm-hmm. their, their first stop. Um, but your father, with that military background, and especially with his experience with nine eleven, um, when you say this opened his eyes, in what way?
2: Um, he he was actually at a uh, at a church service, and um, they had a guest speaker, and uh, sh- this this speaker was leaving the the sanctuary of the church, and uh, stopped dead and looked at him and said, "You're holding on to a lot of hate, um, and and you need to." you need to let go of that and i believe that that was from the lord and so um he prayed about that a lot and thought about it and um and he, and i think he realized came to realize that he did he, there was there was some hatred there um there's not a good another there's not a nice way to say that it's a, and um so for him it was really transformative to be able to um to go from dealing with the worst of humanity um as far as um what you see some of the extremists doing to people, um, and to be able to put a face with it and say, you know, they're not—they're not all that way. And I think that's a good perspective for all of us. Anytime you're dealing with somebody who looks different or um, sounds different or comes from a different background, is just to say, you know, even if you've had a, a bad experience um, with a people group in the past, they're not—they're not all that way.
0: You've said that uh, you think that uh, Americans have a perception of this situation that's incorrect and mm-hmm. inaccurate mm-hmm. in what way
2: um i think that most americans believe that everybody uh, or that there's these massive massive numbers of um of jihadists and extremists that are f- that are fleeing out of these countries and Um, and especially, you know, the, the phrase we keep hearing over and over again here is, um, the unaccompanied single military age men. And, um, with the refugees I was able to work with, that was, there were a lot of them that traveled to Greece separately from their families. Um, but there was not the same, they weren't there because of that. They were there because their family traveled. They got their family out first, or they couldn't afford to bring their whole family at the same time. Um, I had one gentleman I spoke with, um, the guy who who has changed his name now. He goes by Joseph. Who his entire family was killed. That he he couldn't afford to get them into Greece. He moved to, um, uh, got them in a refugee camp in Jordan, and the Syrian government bombed the refugee camp and killed his wife and his six and four year old sons. And so he goes by himself to Greece. He's in his late thirties. You know, it's the narrative is is skewed. I think um, now are there terrorists and jihadists you know hiding in some among the refugees almost certainly um but i think that the rhetoric here in the u.s is so um s- slanted towards towards fear i think we're just so afraid of, of stuff that um of the situation that we just don't want to deal with it that's my opinion that's nobody else's opinion that's my opinion
0: <laughs> you're a devout man so you may look at uh, people a little bit differently
2: yeah.
0: uh, but there are some cynics out there mm-hmm. were there people that uh you know came off one of those rafts off one of those boats that you thought to yourself oh not a good guy
2: um i i won't say an individual um one of the boats that we were able to assist um was almost entirely men um And they were largely, from what the interpreters that were on the island told me, were largely probably Pakistani. Um, You know that's not a safe place. Uh, probably a, by far a majority of the world's jihadists are trained in Pakistan. And so, um, for them to get away from that place, I, I understand that situation too, but chances are they were probably economic migrants. Um, they are looking for better job opportunities in Europe and they're kind of taking advantage of the situation, but I won't lie and say that didn't give me a little bit of pause. You know, um, there was, you know, a boat, boat full of 50, uh, 60 people and there was one woman on it and it was all men. And, um, but you know, even them, they're coming off they're landing on the beach. Uh, most of them didn't even have shoes on. You know the, the journey was clearly not easy for them either. So yeah, there are times that that you experienced that. Mm-hmm.
0: Just if, if you would, mm-hmm. uh, describe the whole situation once you said that uh, you know that people are you know yelling toward the shore. I'm sure the mm-hmm. people on the shore are yelling back and mm-hmm. you know trying to get them in. But what actually did you do to help these these refugees?
2: Um, so, really, what you're doing, um, it's actually illegal to um, go out into the water and assist them. Um, there's a, actually a European um, lifeguards union that patrols the waters in between Turkey and Greece, and they are dolphin-watching officially, um, because any, any assistance they render, and actually the week before I arrived in Greece, um, there was five of them that were arrested um just for just for rendering that type of aid because you're it's an international crime you're you're assisting in the illegal migration across an international border and so um there's turkish coast guard out that you can see from the shore cuz you can actually see turkey from the island um there's greek coast guard out and the only time anyone's really allowed to interfere is if the boat capsizes um so what you're doing um when you get there to, to try and help, is you're, you're literally a lot of times um, a lot of these refugees are, are physically weakened from the trip. Um, I, I had a couple of cases where I, I'm lifting a, a 70 or 80 year old woman with another person out of the boat. Um, you had a lot of um, children who are just really don't understand what's happening, and and, and people that need medical attention. The day I was um, the, the the big biggest chunk of time I was there, it was. Um, in the in the mid to upper 30s <laughs> and, and windy because you're on an island uh, in the middle of an ocean and so there's it, it's not it wasn't warm you had people that were suffering from exposure um, you're trying to get the medical attention so basically you're you're um, you're helping them out of the boat you're getting them to a doctor's there's usually doctors that are um, now there are a couple months ago this was not the case um, but um, there are doctors um, waiting to help to give aid when they get there and so you're doing that you're helping them them, um, you know, um, get treatment. Um, you're helping get them to the the chartered UN buses that will take them to a processing center and then to a refugee camp until they can catch a ferry to uh, to mainland Europe from there.
0: And I should mention that. Uh, uh Pastor Jay's father John uh, took a took some photographs that we have a couple on our website, and I have to admit that uh, one of the things I was a little bit surprised with I could see how people were dressed mm-hmm. on shore that it did not look like it was very warm outside. Uh, wow. So, but the ocean was, was blue as I mean the photographs are are, are beautiful. Yeah, if it wasn't such a, a sad situation for, right. of which they were, but uh, there are a couple on our website uh, wytf org. You mentioned the refugee camps. Mm-hmm. Did you get an opportunity to see those?
2: Uh, we did. We did. There are four camps on Lesbos right now. Um, two are on the northern side of the island, two are on the south side. Um, one of those I was able to actually get into and, and walk around because there were no refugees there at that time. Um, there had just been a, a strike, and that's the other thing. There's a, a, an economic crisis in Greece that's not reported about at the same time. You know. Oh, it's reported on. Yeah. But it's just not
0: in connection. In with connection this. with this, right. exactly. Right. And we right. don't
2: realize that the two overlap pretty well here. Um, that's one of the things that there's a huge disconnect with here in the states. But that's a different story. Um, so uh, there weren't any. Uh, there had been a ferry strike. Um, all the Syrian and Iraqi, the Arabic-speaking refugees had moved out of this camp. Um, it was called Karatape, and so um, we were able to get in and take some pictures and. And that's, you'll see some of those on the on the some of the pictures that I sent you that'll be on the website um, you can see there's there's barbed wire and what look like little tents set up um, those are called refugee housing units that are donated by the UN and there's a picture with me and in, inside one of them so you can kind of get a sense uh, it, the inside of that tent is no bigger than the studio we're sitting in and they'll put three or four families in a, in, in a room this size um, to try and live there for two or three days the showers are all outdoors um, it's It's pretty rough conditions. Um, But yeah, so the other camp um, is for... Um, on the south side of the island, was for non-Arab speakers, you know, Farsi and Dari and, and places, um, you know, like Iraq and, or excuse me, um, Iran and um, Afghanistan, where they speak a different language. So, and that camp is a, is a lot rougher. We weren't able to get into that one. Um, there, Most of the refugees that landed that day were Farsi or Dari speakers. So, that was just utter chaos. Um, people trying to find their children and their parents and, and aunts and uncles and find family members and make sure everyone's connected and that they're all getting registered properly. Really so that they can continue on their trip, but something you're describing here may surprise a lot of people,
0: and that is that you know this has been described mostly as a Syrian refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. That uh, we have so many people who are trying to get out of uh, Syria because of the civil war there, mm-hmm. but uh, you're you're describing a lot of different countries that they're coming from.
2: Oh yeah. Um some of the aid workers I was speaking to had had even um, on lesbos on the island in, in the Aegean you know, Eight miles from the ten miles from the Turkish border had even seen refugees, people fleeing danger, coming through there that had been trafficked from South America. Um, it's I don't know how they ended up there. to Be honest with you, but most of the migration is happening from. Um, and like I said, there was even um, Pakistanis that I that I met there that day and saw that. Um, you know, Afghanistan is still not a stable place, <laughs> hasn't been for thirty years. Um, so there's there's people fleeing there. Um, you know. Iran um, is is not a, a totally stable place in terms of um, being uh, democratically open and and people feeling like they're oppressed there and so yeah there's a lot of uh, of um, refugees coming from other places as well. Iran is the one that uh, sticks
0: out. Uh, very rarely. Hear about the refugees uh, that are looking to relocate uh, mm-hmm. coming from Iran.
2: Yeah, and what's happening is um, they're they're being denied access into into the, the greater European um, community because they're not coming from a quote unquote war torn country. It seems some of that's happening with the Afghans right now as well. Hmm. But I mean, right now you've got um, in just you know with the the most recent aid deal the, the European Union sent. I don't know, uh, half a billion dollars to Greece and pretty much told them to deal with the problem, which they're having trouble dealing with their own people uh, because of the economic troubles. And um, so, you know, you've literally got thousands and thousands of people sleeping in the port of Piraeus in Athens um, without access to good food, uh, or food, water, personal hygiene, um, living in tents there because Europe shut its borders. And so um, the problem's only getting worse.
0: How far is Athens from yeah. Lesbos?
2: Um, it was about a 45 minute plane ride. Um, it, it's uh, if you're catching the ferry, it does stop at some of the other islands closer when you get closer to mainland Greece, and so it's about a 12 hour ferry ride for the refugees, and that's what they have to take generally.
0: Most of the attention, uh, <laughs> at least in the media that we hear, is a political one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which country is taking refugees, uh, which ones aren't, um, how they're going to pay for it, and it's described as a crisis. Mm-hmm. From
2: what you saw, is it a crisis? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a humanitarian crisis on a scale like we've never seen in our lifetime. In why my you, lifetime, certainly. Why do you say that? Um, because most of these people don't have access to what we would consider basic necessities. So what's happening in Europe, there's been about a million, a little over a million mi- uh, refugees that have migrated into U- Europe, okay? Um, in, in, uh, in Northern Iraq, um, in um, Lebanon, in Jordan, you've got three million refugees. I mean, most of them can't afford to even get there, so the problem is so much bigger than just getting into Europe. we're just seeing um, and even now with Europe closing its borders, um, like I said, you literally you know I was just um, was emailing back and forth with some of my contacts that are there um, yesterday. you've still got people literally sleeping on 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 the docks at the port um, in tents um, they, don't have, they don't have access to a, a restroom, they don't have access to a shower, they don't have a way to prepare food for their families. Um, I don't know what else you call those those circumstances, but a humanitarian crisis. Um, and then, and that's not to speak about anything that's happening, like I said, in in Lebanon and Jordan uh, and in parts of Iraq um, that that are not experiencing that same kind of conflict right now. Those refugees that can't afford to get to Greece are moving away from the conflict area, but they still don't have access to those things because Lebanon and Jordan are, are overwhelmed at this point, and are, the Iraqi government certainly not in a Super stable position to be able to give aid to to all the people that need it right now. So
0: what did you take away from it personally?
2: Uh, A lot of takeaways Um, personally, I think um, We live in the most blessed circumstances of of any country in the world and I think that um, From a from a legislative standpoint from a political standpoint, I think we could be doing more and I think you know um, yeah, I just, it, it's just, you can't, you can't help but see, um uh, people struggling to, um, I mean, you, you see the beach there in Lesvos it's littered with shoes and clothes that the, you know, the aid workers have to strip off of people because they're shivering. They're exposing, you know, hypothermia uh, and they have to sometimes strip them down naked right there in front of all these other refugees just to, just to rend them, you know, give them medical assistance. Um, and then you go home and, and you get in your car and you drive to your house and you sleep in your bed and you get up in the morning and go into your refrigerator and get uh, food and, and you're just so grateful that you don't have to deal with those things. But it doesn't mean you're not reminded that those people that don't have aren't sticking with you. And we have those people that don't have here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't help here. Um, we certainly need to be helping you know with our friends and neighbors in the community here that don't have that. But um, it's just a, it's a different scenario.
0: Jay Worth is a youth pastor based in York County. Uh, pastor Jay, thank you very much for uh, sharing your experiences. And as I mentioned, we do have some photographs on our website, WITF.org. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania has a new slogan designed to attract visitors to the state. Pennsylvania, pursue your happiness. It may sound familiar. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was a line in the Declaration of Independence adopted in Philadelphia. Some $500,000 was spent on the new slogan, which is the first step in a promotional campaign. Joining us today to talk more about it is Michael Ciappolone, Executive Director of Tourism with the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development. Uh, Mr. Ciappolone, welcome to the program.
3: Scott, it's a pleasure to be back, and thank you for inviting me. All right, let's talk about the new slogan.
0: Why did Pennsylvania need a new slogan?
3: Well, this is really a process that started some 18 months ago. Um, and it really uh, was the private industry came and said that we don't really feel that Pennsylvania is being promoted as much as it could be, and considering all of our amazing assets, followed by the uh, destination marketing community I was uh, saying the same thing. So, uh, it launched a public-private partnership, which uh, set off on a both a fundraising goal and a, a fundraising campaign and a campaign to create a new brand uh, slogan for Pennsylvania.
0: Now, when you say this, uh, a private partner, p- public partnership, um, what do you mean? I mean that's it's something that government is, is more involved in, but most people think of that as highways and uh, you know different uh, kind of infrastructure projects like that. Uh, how would you describe this one?
3: It was really an effort uh, launched by uh, the the previous administration and due to a call for a greater uh, attention to detail with promoting Pennsylvania to uh, the rest of the world.
0: And when you say that there were people who were saying that Pennsylvania wasn't being promoted quite as well as it it should have. I mean, we've had other slogans over the years. You've got a friend in Pennsylvania. America starts here. Uh, You know, a lot of them have to do with uh, Philadelphia and uh, the colonial era. The Declaration of Independence seems to uh, uh, come into play a lot. But uh, what do you mean or what did they mean in particular that Pennsylvania wasn't being promoted as well as it could be?
3: That's a great question. And when many uh, Pennsylvanians and and those even outside the state were asked, you know, what is Pennsylvania? What is our slogan? Very few could come up with state of independence. Uh, So... We needed, you know, that many uh, referred back to um, You've Got a Friend or America Starts Here, uh, which uh, did resonate, but we needed something that really connected with the fabric and core uh, of Pennsylvania, and we
0: think we have it with Pursue Your Happiness. All right. And we'll talk more about the process, but uh, when we think of other states, Virginia's for lovers is, is one that uh, uh, comes to mind right away. I love New York. Uh, are those the gold standards?
3: Those are premier examples of tourism slogans, but we feel very All strong. Right, you don't
0: want to give the other states credit, right? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no. All right. I just have to go ahead. <laughs> uh,
3: those are definitely uh, premier examples, uh, but we think that before uh, you can find love, you have to find happiness.
0: <laughs> that sounds like you've had that discussion before. <laughs> but i guess my point is is that those slogans have been around for some time now i mean virginia is probably 30 years or so i don't know about new york but maybe quite as long and everyone recognizes is that what you're looking for is that kind of slogan that just resonates with people and sticks around for years
3: that is exactly our 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 goal but we feel that since happiness and the spirit of welcoming was really part of the Commonwealth's founding uh, with William Penn, his goal was to make everyone feel welcome, uh, so we think that this is so uh, stitched into the cloth of the the Commonwealth that we think that pursue your happiness will will
0: last Talk about the process. How did you arrive at uh, pursue your happiness?
3: Uh, certainly, there was a great deal of industry re- research that was conducted uh, both in through uh, focus groups uh, and regional meetings throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, the the result of that was a couple uh, of possible uh, brand positions uh, that was that were developed. Um, the next step was really testing those. We tested them in nine uh, states, including Pennsylvania. Um, how that resonates, you know, uh, how pers- and pursue your happiness off the charts. Uh, Uh, was the favorite.
0: Are you able to tell me what some of the ones that didn't make it are?
3: We're going to move forward with uh, Pennsylvania Pursue Your Happiness.
0: (laughs) I understand that. Not taking a step back. I understand that because uh, there may be people who, everyone has an opinion on this. Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, there are people when they heard Pursue Your Happiness said, what? I don't like that. I like state of independence better. Everyone seems to have an opinion on it. And I'm sure that if you listed some of those ones that didn't make it, someone would say, oh, I like that better. This is one, one of those topics that people have an opinion on it. But if people don't realize, I mean, we've gone through this here at WITF. Businesses uh, go through it all the time with branding and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of talk that goes into this. It, is, is that right?
3: Oh, absolutely. It, it, we, uh, this, is, this process really had the buy-in from the uh, public and uh, private industry, and it um, was a long process. I mean, 18 months in the making.
0: So what is a slogan designed to do?
3: A slogan is really, it's not a brand. Uh, a slogan is really sort of the um, call-out for the brand, but a brand is a promise. Uh Volvo, um, I'm not certain what their slogan is, but their brand is safety, right. and we want Pennsylvania's brand to be happiness.
0: Hmm. All right. So I mentioned the $500,000 price tag, and you also touched on that it was a public-private uh, partnership. Uh, again, many people hear that $500,000 price tag, and we earlier in this program talked about not having a state budget, and they think that sounds like a lot of money to come up with a, a new slogan.
3: Absolutely, it is certainly a, a significant amount. Uh, but two points: one being that no money from the current the fifteen sixteen state budget was used uh, for that, uh, and the uh, two hundred fifty thousand that was provided. Previously was matched by another two hundred fifty from uh, private investment.
0: Money wise, how does that compare? I mean, five hundred thousand dollars. Again, to give us some context, how does five hundred thousand dollars compare to what uh, a private company would spend?
3: I think that um, considering the the weight of what we are, are doing here in creating a new brand for Pennsylvania, I think that is. Um, uh, a, a figure that is definitely comparable to others that have has spent. Ohio recently re- uh, announced a a new uh, campaign, a new slogan, and uh, it was a similar figure.
0: What's Ohio's new slogan? I'm not sure. You're not sure. So you're, you 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 have tunnel vision. I got to tell you that. I, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I have a job to do, I,
0: and I'm saying that in a in a way that I'm uh, you know being humorous about it. But uh, it's a good thing to have tunnel vision. Though. I have been
3: living and breathing "Pursue Your Happiness" for quite a while.
0: <laughs> All right. So the slogan is one thing, and it's just one of the first steps. Where do you go from here?
3: absolutely uh, it is really a grassroots effort uh, we are had a, a meeting with all of our uh, the both private industry and our convention and visitors bureaus across the state uh, we're also rolling this out in welcome centers uh, they received a packet of information and how to incorporate the new slogan and brand into everything they do from when they greet customers to uh, look and feel of of their message so it's a as a gradual rollout uh, of of this new Pursue Your Happiness brand,
0: I know that um, over the years we've used some of our slogans on like Welcome to Pennsylvania signs uh, at state lines. Will this be part of that?
3: That's been that's a great question, and we've uh, had a lot of people ask us uh, just that, uh, and that is part of the uh, eventual plan is to to address all of the. Uh, public appearances i'll say of of the slogan
0: Mm -hmm. now a slogan is is just a uh, it's a small thing you want people to remember it you want people to think of pennsylvania but what else has to be done i mean the slogan itself you said yourself the slogan itself can't just attract tens of thousands of visitors to pennsylvania what other promotional campaigns or promotions do you have in mind
3: We, uh, social media is a huge part of it. Uh, Our hashtag, PA Travel Happy, uh, has been used by more than 1.5 million people since Tuesday. So uh, that seems to be really catching on and creating ambassadors. I mean, Pennsylvanians themselves uh, account for 42% of our uh, visitors.
0: Only 42%. I'm a little surprised by that because it just seems as though people living in the state that you would have more. but So it's less than half.
3: It's less than half, but that's a um, higher number than um, many states, mm-hmm. including like Hawaii, which is a you know, fly to uh, destination. So, um, yeah. So it's it's a grassroots effort, both with social media and um, eventually we're going to uh, do some limited some you know, limited dollars, but limited uh, digital advertising. So,
0: who's your target audience? We
3: will start with Pennsylvanians
0: mm-hmm. and social media mostly. Social media, advertising. TV advertising, billboards,
3: what? Mostly online. Oh, okay, okay. Certainly. Is that the way to go nowadays? It is. Uh, the technology uh, that uh, exists online to really target and reach the people that are interested in your messages is, is through digital
0: advertising. You know, and I've heard this many times, and I know I've been guilty of it myself, that uh, we in Pennsylvania, and I'm sure other state's uh, residents to the same thing, that we take for granted what we have because we've grown up near... Uh, say Hershey or uh, Gettysburg or Lancaster, uh, you know, some of the tourist destinations here in central Pennsylvania. Um, I went to school in Philadelphia. I remember I would eat lunch at Independence Hall and people would say, you know, I've never been in there, although I've lived within a few miles. So I, you know, do we, do we see that uh, very often that we have a lot of people who kind of take things for granted and they have to be nudged along a little bit?
3: I mean, people are often surprised that uh, the region we are in currently with, with Hershey and Lancaster and Gettysburg is really a premier destination, both internationally uh, and and throughout the Commonwealth. Um, but yeah, we are very fortunate. I am very fortunate in, that I get Pennsylvania to promote.
0: Mm-hmm. So, once we go out of state, where do you uh, promote Pennsylvania most often, other areas?
3: We are fortunate that we are in a three-hour's drive of a huge population of of the nation. So you look at centers like uh, New York City, the Baltimore-Washington area, Cleveland, uh, and even Canada.
0: Now, you said that 42% of our visitors uh, are Pennsylvanians. Uh, What's the number one state outside of Pennsylvania where visitors come from? New York. New York. Yeah. And where do they go? Do we know?
3: Certainly. uh, The Pocono Mountains is a great attraction, uh, and New York is an easy train uh, drive to both the Harrisburg, Lancaster areas, and Philadelphia, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. See, I was surprised you didn't say Philadelphia because so many people take the train from Philadelphia to New York and and vice versa. But, yeah, you watch any television show based in New York and they talk about the Poconos like it's, it's part of New York. All right, so we only have about a, a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being on with us today. But uh, what are some of the other ways that you will promote and use this slogan? And there is a logo, too. What's the logo look like?
3: The logo is a smile. And it's uh, Pennsylvania, pursue your happiness, and pursue your happiness forms a, a smile underneath uh, the the word of the state. So um, we're very proud of it. mm
0: mm-hmm. so, so in 30 seconds or less, uh, what can Pennsylvanians be looking for here in the next few months as this is rolled out?
3: They should go to visitpa.com, and that is our uh, calling card for uh, visiting Pennsylvania. That's the first point of entry. So they should look there for, as we roll out all of the new uh, creative elements of the brand, Pursue Your Happiness.
0: Michael Chapaloni is Executive Director of Tourism with the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development. Mr. Chapeloni, thank you very much for being with us today. And you know, I have a, I don't know, I feel like uh, traveling in Pennsylvania somewhere today.
3: <laughs> Please do so. I appreciate it. <laughs> All
0: right. Thank you very much. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, I mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going to be talking about uh, how the state budget impasse is having an impact on farmers in Pennsylvania and could create even more trouble. Also talk about colon cancer. That's coming up on Monday's program.